In our last lecture, we spoke briefly about interpretation. George Hunziger, in his reading Bart with charity, is correct that we should read an author with charity and sympathy. We should interpret them in the most favorable light possible. If only Van Til's critics would follow the same advice. It is our conviction, however, that the most charitable reading of Bart is one in which his genius is recognized and appreciated. And part of that is, inter is to interpret him as one who was consistent in his thinking and which follows the trajectory of his thought in context. And reading and understanding what he says in light of the concerns he was seeking to address. Too much Bart interpretation loses sight of this. And Bart often gets interpreted as if he were just another Reformed and Orthodox theologian. While it may seem charitable to read Bart in line with Orthodoxy, the opposite, I would contend, is actually the case. And that is not to try to pin him up as a heretic. Rather, it is to truly listen to him in context and his concerns that he addresses, to respect his concerns, to respect his overall project should be our goal as Bart interpreters which was to, in many ways, throw over the tables all of the theologies that came before him. That was his overall project. He really was a theological iconoclast. But interpreters of Bart also get misled by an overly rigorous, literal reading of Bart. That's wooden. That's literal. According to many, we can only understand Bart to have taught that which is express, expressly stated, as if the church dogmatics is a collection of mere affirmations and denials. But it is not. Bart makes ample use of ambiguous language, ambiguous language he employs on purpose. He does so purposely in order to support and to undergird his dialectical project. But more than that, there are concepts which do necessarily flow and follow given certain commitments that Bart makes in his explicit statements. And while he may not assert those concepts explicitly, they are nevertheless necessary entailments. And one of those entailments is Bart's alleged universalism. For Van Til, the entirety of Bart's theology, and his soteriology in particular, lead to a universal view of salvation. To Bart's credit, he did not leave the charge of universalism unaddressed. He does address it explicitly. But he does so <clears throat> only after the fact. That is, after he sets forth his soteriology and then becomes a recipient of the charge. It's more reactive than proactive. So here we survey Van Til's two most pressing critiques of Bart's soteriology. First, that in Bart's theology, there is no transition from wrath to grace. And second, Bart's alleged universalism. So let's tackle these one at a time. First, there is no transition from wrath to grace. Very rarely do critics of Van Til attack this particular reading of Bart. It is in part because it's really hard to deny. Bart is pretty clear about his view of history and how God's acts do, or don't, as the case may be, participate in it. But also because Burkhauer leveled the same criticism. And among critics of Bart, Burkhauer 
is somewhat favored among the Bardians. Bardians kind of give him a pass, even when, he, even when they won't give a pass to Van Til for saying basically the same thing. Burkauer is regarded as a more sympathetic reader of Bart, and that's probably true. Burkauer also spoke less technically than Van Til did, and arguably failed to maintain the antithesis between Christianity and Bardianism the way in which he should have. Nevertheless, both Van Til and Burkauer expressed the same concern. Van Til, early on, in Christianity and Bardianism, leveled this critique. And I'd like to offer you a quote, a quote from Van Til. The lack of a transition from wrath to grace in history is due to Bart's basically nominalistic, realist view of the relationship of God to man. In spite of all his efforts to have God speak to man from above, Bart's view remains subjective. In other words, Bart's theology is said, in effect, to reject historic Christianity. The death of Christ on the cross is not that by which he, as our substitute, saves us from the wrath to come. For there is no wrath in God that could issue in man's eternal death. The resurrection of Christ is not that event in history by which Christ arises from the dead for our justification. We are already justified in Christ. Thus, there is no place in history where God and man really confront one another. There are five things I would like to underscore here. First, Bart's nominalist, realist view. Second, Bart's subjective view. Third, Bart's rejection of the cross-resurrection sequence. Fourth, Bart's transcendent justification idea. And fifth, Bart's denial of the God-man confrontation in history. First, Bart's nominalist, realist view. This is the parallel to what Van Til says about irrationalism and rationalism. You'll remember, as we said before, because of the qualitative difference between God and man, man is left here without direct access to the knowledge of God. And so this is where we have the sphere of irrationalism. There is no reason, there is no rationale for God to say what he says, for man to say what he wants to say about God, because there's no connection between man and revelation. And it arises from his dialectical relating, <clears throat> as we have said, between Geschichte and history. We are in history, or what we have called our time. <clears throat> and God, in Christ, is in Geschichte, or what we have been calling God's time for us. And the two, Geschichte and history, God's time and our time, do not meet. They do not cross paths. That means that God is in his own particular realm, qualitatively distinct from, apart from us. It is there, in that realm, that God acts to reveal Himself in Jesus Christ. But we, here, do not receive that revelation. Thus, God and man are unrelated. We share no common being. If we did, 
we would have the problem of the Analogia Entis once again. So Bart, wanting to avoid Analogia Entis, the Analogia Entis, actually, with this distinction, gives rise to nominalism. All speech of man about God can only be the naming, man's naming of God. It can have no ground in the being of God itself. This is the nominalism, the nominalistic element. At the same time, up here, God is wholly revealed and wholly received, or that revelation is wholly received by man in Jesus Christ. Jesus, as the God-man, is the God who has revealed Himself to man and at the same time is the humanity that receives that revelation. This is the realism. It's an absolute one-for-one relationship. It's a realistic relationship as God and man are identified wholly with one another in God's time for us. Revelation is not something that we can perceive of in the here and now, but it is a, for lack of better expression, a once-for-all event in Jesus Christ in God's special sphere of time known as God's time for us. Second, what does Van Til mean by Bart's subjectivist view? This ends up yielding a subjectivist view of theology, and no less so than in Schleiermacher. Bart never really leaves consciousness theology, according to Van Til, as he says in Christianity and Bartianism, pages 2 to 5. But how can this be? With all of his protest of liberalism, how can Bart actually still be one with consciousness theology? Remember, all God's acts are once for all in God's time for us, according to Karl Barth. All of this happens without ever at any time coming into or penetrating down, intruding within our time. The two times remain always and everywhere distinct and separate. That therefore means that we are left alone. We are left to our own devices down here to do theology. Our theology is done on our own. We only have fallible witnesses in Scripture and in the proclamation of the church. Scripture, the proclamation of the church, we only have these witnesses to Revelation, and they're fallible. We have no direct access to the act of Revelation itself. To say to the contrary would be to violate the sacred sphere of God's exclusive activity, according to Karl Barth. But how do we know if the Bible is, in fact, fallible, as Barth says that it is, what in the Bible rightly witnesses to Revelation, and what does not? What can be sort of cast away and and what can be kept, or, or what is trustworthy <clears throat> and what is not. If it's fallible, that assumes that it can make mistakes, that it can err at some point or another. With no other objective standard that is before us, no other access to revelation, whether in nature or Scripture, it is the autonomous theologian then who decides what is, in fact, pertaining to to Revelation and what is not. 
And now, our theology is a projection of ourselves. Our theology operating in this way is no less a projection of ourselves as liberalism was a projection of man. Feuerbach said that theology was really just anthropology. That is to say, the projection of man's religious experiences. Feuerbach was absolutely correct. Van Til says that Bart actually has no answer to Feuerbach. Feuerbach grins with his criticism of modern theology, and at no point is Bart able to slap the grin off his face. Bart cannot laugh in the face of Feuerbach because Bart's theology is just as subjectivistic as is liberalism. This is because the objective, the real connection to history and its relation is gone in Bart's theology. God does not relate to man in our time, but only in his own time. Man's theological project at heart really is just humanism. Third, Bart's rejection of the cross-resurrection sequence. Because God's act of reconciliation takes place in His time, not ours, therefore the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, according to Van Til, as understood by, the, by Reformed theology, is essentially negated in Bart's theology. Now that is not to say that Bart denies the idea of the atonement. In fact, he affirms it. And it is not as if the atonement that he affirms occurs completely disconnected from us. Bart speaks about the humanity of Christ as our humanity, which he takes up into himself, puts to death, and then raises unto new life. But all of this is occurring not here in the sequential cause and event sequence of historical events, but takes place once and for all as a singular event up in God's time for us. So, redemptive history does not occur in our time. It is the time, redemptive history, is the time of God's grace for us in Geshikta. That is quite prior to and independent of our own time. This is what Bart himself says in CD 4.1, page 157. The atonement is the very special history of God with man. The special history of God with man. This means that all the doctrines, which historically have their basis in sequential historical events, receive by Bart an overhaul. For example, the fall is not something that occurs in time. It's not as if there is a sequence of events between creation, innocence, sin. Not at all. For Bart, our time is just a time of sin. All of this under here in history or in our time is characterized by sin. Just as there is no transition between innocence and sin, so likewise for Bart, there is no transition from wrath to grace in history, in our time. Another example is how Bart deals with Christ's humiliation and exaltation. Humiliation and exaltation are not two different 
sequentially arranged events for Bart, but rather they are together the one reality of our salvation in God's time for us. The state of humiliation indicates Christ's death for our sin, and exaltation indicates His resurrection for our justification. But again, these are not events that occur in our time. But they are the one reality of God's reconciling grace for us in Christ in His own special history. I quote, In Him, humanity is exalted humanity, just as the Godhead is humiliated Godhead. So, humiliation and exaltation then are not two historical states of Christ, uh, as it is in the tradition. Rather, they are mutually qualifying characteristics of God and humanity in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, humanity is exalted and God is humiliated. This is the Christological and transcendent recasting of the doctrine of the two states of Christ. So similarly, with the relation between cross and resurrection. While the cross and the resurrection are events in our time, that is not where the meaning of our reconciliation is found. The real meaning of our reconciliation is found Christologically within that special time of God. The cross of Jesus just is the act of taking our sinful flesh by Christ. And the resurrection just is the act of justification that we already have in Christ and always have had in Christ. The former corresponding to His human nature, the latter His divine. The human nature is characteristic of cross and death. The divine nature is characteristic of resurrection life. And together, they form our justification, which is an event not in our time, but in God's special time, and therefore is true at every time. There is no time, according to Karl Barth, in which man is not justified, because the act of justification takes place in a transcendent, a supratemporal event. In this way, Jesus Christ is both the man of sin, as well as the justifying God. And as such, he is also the justified man and the condemned God. Therefore, in reconciliation, or in Bart's doctrine of reconciliation, the cross and resurrection are not sequential events that occur in our time. Rather, they are simultaneous events that occur in God's time for us. Therefore, the atonement is not the kind of event in which a sinner moves from being under wrath to becoming justified in the sight of God. Rather, our justification, and not just our justification, but the justification of all men, is something that is accomplished once for all in that special history of reconciliation. Fourth, Bart's justification idea. This idea naturally flows from the previous one. If there is no transition from God's wrath, justly standing against man, to man now standing justified before God by the sequential event of cross and resurrection, then justification must be something other than a new judicial status, which supersedes a former status of condemnation. Justification is a declaration that we have, according to Bart, 
quite prior to and apart from anything that we witness within our own particular time sphere. It is something that is already the case. It is something that occurs prior to, independent of our personal faith that takes place here in real calendar time history. And in this way, Bart's view has some similarity to the idea of eternal justification, a view famously connected with people like Abraham Kuyper and John Gill, to name a few, or a couple. The Christologically reconceived notion of justification is clear. In God's time for us, Jesus Christ is both the justifying God and the justified man. That is because Jesus Christ is the man of faith. It is the faith, then, of Jesus Christ which is His justification, and we in Him are justification. Our justification is found in Him, in His justified humanity, as it takes place in this once-and-for-all event in God's time for us. Fifth, Bart's denial of the God-man confrontation in history. This statement can be confusing in light of what Bart says in a place like Church Dogmatics 4.1, section 59.1. There, Bart affirms that the atonement is historical, and he denies explicitly that the atonement is a supra-historical and non-historical event. But he then goes on to talk about that the history that the atonement is, is a special history. This is not the history of our time as we conceive of history. Rather, it is the history of God's time for us. So remember what Van Til keeps saying, and here he is quoting Bart, Revelation is historical, but history is never revelational. You see, Revelation is historical. What history, though, is he talking about? He's talking about God's history for us, such that here in our history, we must understand that it is never revelational. This, our history, has no power to reveal what is up here. It can only point to and witness to that which is above. How can he say that? The only way he can say it is with a two-tiered understanding of history, two-tiered view of history. God's history for us, our history. God's time for us, our time. That's the two-tiered structure that Bart has that makes sense of the way in which he speaks equivocally about time and history. Revelation, according to Bart, is historical depending on which history you have in mind. And the atonement is historical depending on which history you have in view. We're talking about this one, the answer is no. There is no atonement here. If we're talking about this history, yes, then the atonement is historical because it's God's special history in which it occurs. So understood in terms of our time, the atonement is not found here. But in terms of God's special history, the time that He has for us in Christ, there is where we find the atonement. That is redemptive history. So oftentimes when we speak, especially here at Reform Forum, about redemptive history and redemptive historical, we have in view the acts of God redeeming His people in our 
calendar time history. Bart rejects the idea that redemptive history occurs here. It only occurs here. So, such a history is not measurable with a calendar. The real history of redemption is not measurable with a calendar for Karl Barth. It cannot be the subject of the historian's study. It is not subject to man's historiography and the rules of, of scientific history and research. It's untouchable by man. But it also, for Bart, is very real. In fact, it is the realest thing there is. It is unique. It is original. And that history is the presupposition and basis of our existence. It is the place where God is with man and man is with God. So only here does God confront man. In this special history, this alone is the history of God the reconciler and man the reconciled. The God-man is both fully God the reconciler and he is fully man the man reconciled. Only here is man transitioned from wrath to grace. But the word transition has even got to be used with a certain amount of equivocation. There is no actual movement of, of cause and effect in sequences. It is in one particular event, the event of the reconcile, reconciling of man to God. But in our time, there is no such transition. There is no transition from wrath to grace. Let's talk about now Bart's alleged universalism. Van Til's criticism that there is no transition from wrath to grace in Bart's theology is the most basic criticism one can make of Bartian theology. That is because it is tied inextricably to the idea of universalism. The two ideas go hand in hand. The idea of no transition from wrath to grace and universalism go hand in hand conceptually and logically. Van Til is insistent that Bart's view of grace is such that sovereign grace is universal grace. This is what Van Til says, and I quote, Bart calls his position on election what a purified superlapsarianism. He calls it this in order to bring out the fact that grace is both sovereign and universal. Having a proper view of grace, we know of no men and of no class of men who are permanently rejected of God. What Van Til means by sovereign grace is Bart's idea of divine freedom. And divine freedom comes from the geschichte, history distinction that we find here. Because grace does not occur in our time, it occurs only in God's time, and it happens in Christ. In Christ, God reconciles himself to humanity in the humanity of Christ. And Christ's humanity is the humanity not of just one man, but of all men. Therefore, all men are reconciled to God in his time of grace for us. So we will unpack this idea of universalism in four parts. First, we'll talk about Geschichte and universalism. Second, we'll talk about the freedom of God in Geschichte. Third, we'll talk about reprobation in Christ. And fourth, we'll talk about Bart's qualification to the universal idea.
So first of all, Geschichte and Universalism. Here I want to quote again from Christianity and Bardianism on page 32, Van Til says, In Christ as Geschichte, Christ is identical with His work, and His work is that of the salvation of all men. Bart stresses this biblical universalism, as he calls it, over and over. As biblical universalism, it differs from philosophical universalism. Biblical universalism is, says Bart, not based upon man's inherent goodness. It in no way resembles the philosophical optimism of Leibniz and others. Biblical universalism wants to take sin seriously. And Bart does take sin seriously, that's true. But he doesn't take the fall seriously. That is because there is no, as we mentioned before, historical fall for Bart. Humanity, by virtue of not being divinity, is sinful. It is inherently fallen. It's already fallen. Fallenness is the very nature of man. And this is the humanity that Christ takes to himself. And it is this humanity which is rejected by God. So Bart can say that Christ is both the elect and reprobate man. He is rejected that he might be accepted, and we with him. And so any talk of transition from wrath to grace take place for Bart only Christologically in God's time for us. It does not occur in our time, other than in so much as it is said that Christ takes our fallen nature or a fallen time to himself. But that doesn't mean that it happens here. When Christ takes our fallen time to himself, that is a reference to the humanity of Christ in Geshikta. Therefore, the salvation that we enjoy in Christ is the salvation that Christ has enjoyed in himself. For he is the man who is reprobate, yet... More than that, he is elect. He is, in his humanity, the elect man, not finally reprobate man. And that humanity is not not a private humanity to himself alone, but rather it is our humanity, the humanity of all men, says Bart. Therefore, there is no room for reprobate men. Why? Because in Jesus Christ, the reprobate man has become the elect man. Second, the freedom of God in Geshikta. According to Van Til, the freedom of God for Bart is primary. In Geshikta, or God's time for us, God exercises His freedom to be with us in Christ. The sovereign act of election is not something that happens in our time. It is therefore unconstrained by us. And only if it does not occur in our time can it truly be a free act of God. And it is a free act of God. Therefore, it does not happen in our time, but only in God's time for us. Nevertheless, this free act of God constitutes His being as what it is. God's being is in His act of redemption. For Bart, God is free then to determine His own being. And the being He determines for Himself is essentially gracious. That also means that he determines man's being. God and man have their being mutually determined in the God-man, Jesus Christ. There's the 
mutual determination of the ontology of God and man within the God-man, Jesus Christ, in God's special time for us. And that determination of man by God is for all men. All men are determined in the humanity of Christ. Humanity also has its being in act, but not in its own act, but in God's act. This is the determination of man by God. God determines man. And since it takes place not in our time, but in God's time, it is not the kind of determination that we can make. Man cannot determine to be with God, and he cannot determine to be without God. Notice that. Dwell on that for a second. Man cannot determine to be with God. Likewise, man cannot determine to be not with a God. Man just is with God in and by God's own determination for all men in Jesus Christ. The actualizing power of God's electing grace in Christ is, of course, not a unique insight of Van Til's. Virtually the same observations have been made by BART scholars such as Bruce McCormick, Paul Nimmo, Tyler Frick, just to name a few. So it is possible, of course, to disagree with Van Til's read of BART, but his read is far from being idiosyncratic. Third, reprobation in Christ. Van Til says, I quote, Having a proper view of grace, we know of no men and of no class of men who are permanently rejected by God. It was Jesus Christ, alone true man, who alone was rejected of God. Therefore, the rejection of all other men is inherently rejected by God. Because Christ alone is true man and was already rejected by God, there is no rejection left for other men to suffer. God has said no to our reprobation in the reprobation of Jesus Christ in which he is also elect. Christ is therefore both the elect and the reprobate man for us. That is Bart's reconstructed doctrine of double predestination. Formally, it is a part of his theology. He affirms both election and reprobation in God's decree. But it takes here in his theology a new Christological form. Jesus Christ is himself the decree of God. And while Bart affirms that Christ is himself both the electing God and the elect man, in his humanity he is also both elect and reprobate man. He is the sin-bearer, and he dies for us, receiving God's wrath. Therefore, Bart rejects Calvin's view of double predestination, CD 4.2, page 520, as if God elected only some and rejected others, as is Calvin's view. Calvin, and I quote from Bart, found no place for a recognition of the universal relevance of the existence of the man Jesus, of the sanctification of all men as it has been achieved in him. CD 42, page 520. It doesn't get any more clear than that. All men are sanctified in Jesus Christ. It is a universal relevance. So Bart's version brings the double 
into Christ. In God's time for us, Christ is both elect and reprobate. And Christ is that for all men. Fourth, we need to talk about Barth's qualification of his universalism because he does qualify it. Now, Van Til is aware of this qualification as we see in Christianity and Bardianism, page 155 and page 346. But to set up how Van Til deals with it, we should get the qualification out before us. There may be other places where Bart answers the charge of universalism, but there are only two that I'm going to mention here. The first one is from Church Dogmatics 2-2, pages 417 to 418, and then also Church Dogmatics 431, page 477. And this is what Bart says. This is from Church Dogmatics 2-2, page 417 and following. He says this. And I quote, If we are to respect the freedom of divine grace, we cannot venture the statement that is that it must and finally and will finally be coincident with the world of man as such. Just as the gracious God does not need to elect or call any single man, so he does not need to elect or call all mankind. But again, in grateful recognition of the grace of the divine freedom, we cannot venture the opposite statement that there cannot and will not be this final opening up and enlargement of the circle of election and calling. And then from CD4, he says this, No such postulate, that is to say the postulate of universalism, can be made even though we appeal to the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Even though theological consistency might seem to lead our thoughts and utterances most clearly in this direction, we must not arrogate to ourselves that which can be given and received only as a free gift. Nevertheless, we are to, according to Bart, be open to universalism in light of the reality of God and Jesus Christ. And what is more, according to Bart, we are to hope and pray for it. Notice from the following, these points. First of all, Bart at no point denies universalism. Second, while he does not positively assert it explicitly, everything that he says about it tends towards it. Yes, he wants us to pray and hope for it, but it is almost as if he is saying between the lines that we are to expect it. Third, the reason why he does not outright affirm it is simply because in doing so, he would infringe upon the divine prerogative. While everything he says about reconciliation tends towards it, he is reluctant to explicitly affirm it so as not to take away from the freeness of the gift of grace. This is typical of Bart not wanting to infringe upon the divine prerogative, to declare something to be the case, that God must indeed at the end save all men. He is hesitant to do that, to state that, for fear of sounding arrogant and infringing upon the freeness of God to do contrary. But that is not to deny 
that everything that he has been saying about reconciliation does, in fact, lead necessarily to the conclusion of universalism. Now, Van Til is well aware of Bart's qualification. While Bart is open to the charge of inconsistency, Van Til believes it's actually consistent dialecticism. And I quote, But Kuhn does not really need to fear that Bart will hold to an apocatastasis. We are saying this not primarily because Bart has verbally rejected the idea. We are saying this primarily because one of the basic principles of Bart's thinking, to which he has been true throughout his career, is the idea of pure contingency. Van Til goes on to unpack this statement, and I commend that section to you of, Church, of Christianity and Bardianism, page 381. But rather than reading it all here, let me summarize it. At the end of the matter, as we will see, is that given Bart's commitment to the dialectical relation between the two histories of God and man, he is able to say yes and no to universalism. Bart, says Van Til, is committed to pure contingency. The commitment to pure contingency refers to history. This is our time where God is not present. He's absent. Therefore, it is pure contingency. It is the place of chance because God as the sovereign Lord has no control or reign in and over it. Man does not know God other than indirectly. Therefore, God is not directly involved in our history. And therefore, our history is purely contingent. And here, man's faith is only an acknowledgement. His faith is not an assured knowledge of God's grace, the kind of faith that unites sinners to Christ and whereby Christ's righteousness is imputed to them and whereby we are justified being transitioned from wrath to grace. This is what Van Til calls the principle of discontinuity. There is a relation of absolute discontinuity between God and us. But that principle gives rise to the principle of continuity. This is the principle, the principle of continuity, that we find in Geshikta. There's an absolute, continuous relationship between the Creator and the creature in Geshikta. Here, in the absolute continuity, God and man become one. And here is Bart's tendency toward the apocatastasis. But that tendency in Geshikta is countered dialectically by the pure contingency found in history. And in history, the tendency is away from saying anything sure. Why? Well, because God has not revealed it to be so within this realm of contingency, you see. So we are unable to affirm that the salvation is universal. Up here, we can. Down here, we cannot. And so the waffling that we find in Bart's um, qualification about universalism is attributed to not inconsistency, but consistency, according to Van Til, of this two-tiered structure of the dialectical relationship between God's time for us and our time. So in conclusion, we have seen how Van Til approaches Bart in several areas, in the area of revelation, theology proper, and now in this lecture, soteriology. But we would be mistaken 
to think that these are three different things. As Bart and Van Til make clear, they are not different things. Rather, they are three aspects of one and the same thing. Reconciliation, or salvation, God, or and election, and then revelation, all constitute the one act of God's grace for us in God's time for us. Van Til uses the language of geschichte to describe this realm or this sphere of grace. But that term is just one word for which there are many in Bart. Sometimes, as we have noted already, it's called God's special history, other times God's time for us, but it all amounts to the same thing. It is the special realm in which God acts for us in His grace and does so always and everywhere in Jesus Christ. This realm has its correlative reality in history or our time, which is indeed our fallen time. And here there is no God. There is no revelation. There's pure secularity. There is no reconciliation. There is no grace. And because God is not here, He is wholly other and wholly existent in His own special time. In this way, our time, void of God, necessitates God in His own time. Likewise, God in His own time makes necessary our secular time. So you can understand then how these two times mutually, correlatively inform one another and necessitate one another. So in this way, we have two realms, a two-tier reality. They are dialectically related and therefore correlative. They entail each other, necessitate each other, mutually constitute one another. But if that is the case, then Bart really has failed to accomplish what he set out to do, to truly free God from the control of man. For man is still needed on Bart's scheme for the identity of God. The God who acts for us and because of us is the God who is self-willed according to our image. And now, Bart's theology has not escaped the grin of Fauerbach. Bart's theology cannot laugh at Fauerbach. It can only grin with him at itself. Bartianism is a new humanism. It is a new liberalism. The only solution then, on the basis of this critique and of the failure of the Bardian project, is to return to the God of Calvin and the Reformers, says Van Til. Only this God is truly self-contained, and therefore only this God is truly sovereign. Only this God can be a God of true grace, for only this God saved His people from the wrath to come. Only this God confronts man in covenant in man's own time, and in so doing, he transitions those elect from before the foundations of the earth from a state of sin and misery and wrath to a state of grace and salvation. May all due glory, praise, and honor be unto this God forever and ever. Amen.